1 Corinthians 15. You will remember, hopefully, if you were here last week, that we looked at verses 1 through to 11, which primarily dealt with the subject of the evidence for the resurrection. And Paul gave us very, very convincing evidence of why we can know that the Lord Jesus rose from the dead. Now, we know that he was doing that not because the Corinthians did not believe in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, but rather they had failed to put their faith in the fact that one day, because Jesus had risen from the grave, that they would rise again. And therefore, he's building up a case, and he does this by citing the fact that it is historical fact that Jesus rose from the dead. We take up our reading. Maybe we'll read from verse 1 just to get the context. But our main portion for consideration tonight is verse 12 through to verse 19, our subject, the repercussions of no resurrection. Verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, that is Peter, then of the twelve. After that he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that he was seen of James, then of all the apostles, And last of all, he was seen of me also as of one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, that am not meet to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it were I or they, so we preach and so ye believe. Here are our verses for this evening. Now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, I say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead. But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen. And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. There is a story, I'm not sure whether it's true or whether it is legend, of a German princess who, when she was on her deathbed, ordered that her grave be covered with a great granite slab and that around that great granite slab be placed solid blocks of stone. And she requested that the whole thing be fastened together with clamps of iron. On her tombstone should be cut these words, she said. This burial place purchased to all eternity, must never be open. It just so happened that a little acorn was buried in the process of the covering up of the grave. During the months that followed, the seed sprouted, 
and the tender shoot found its way up through the crevice of the iron binding and the stones and actually eventually in its strength pushed aside the rocks that were never to be moved. I'm sure I'm true in saying that most of us, if not all of us, have stood by a burial place of someone very near and dear to us, a loved one. And I'm also sure that perhaps we could say that we have felt the finality of the moment. Maybe we've even wondered if there is any hope left at all for us or for our loved one that seems to have gone into eternity. Maybe we've even questioned if the awful clutch of death would ever be released from their hearts. Fact of the matter is that death is a very human experience literally for us all. The grave threatens to sever us from our loved ones for all eternity. The tomb seems to be sealed forever to some people, never to be opened again. But the fact of the matter is, if we are Christians, we believe that the Christian hope is that those who have died in Jesus, in other words, those who have died having saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, in their heart there has been planted a seed, if you like, an acorn of hope. And when they are buried, one day we believe that that acorn will blossom into the tree of a resurrection body. If God does not leave even a little acorn or any insignificant seed in the ground, do you think he will desert a man or woman that is made in his image and in fact is twice his because they are redeemed by sovereign grace and precious blood? The fact of the matter is there is for the Christian. For the child of God, even while stirring into the deep and devilish eyes of death, there is a balm of comfort. That is why Paul could say that we sorrow, yes, but we sorrow not as others who are without hope. And the hope that we have as Christians is the hope of the resurrection. In fact, I would say that all we have to cling to when death has stripped us of a loved one from our arms is the truth of the resurrection. One writer has said, it is the solace of a soon coming spring in the bitter breeze of death's darkest winter. And as Christians, without a hope in a resurrection, we are without hope at all in our lives and at all in eternity. We have no hope if there is no resurrection of the dead. And if you take away the resurrection hope from the Christian, you take away everything that he possesses. Now that is why Paul takes so seriously the Corinthian doubts that they one day would be raised from the grave. And as every true preacher, what Paul does is he not only declares the truth of the gospel, that the resurrection is fact in verses 1 to 11 that we looked at last week, but he shows us the devastating results that would inevitably, inevitably flow out of, of serious error with regards to this resurrection truth. If you like what I've put as your title tonight, the repercussions of no resurrection. And we must realize tonight as believers in Christ who are very privileged to have the word of God before us and meet in this fashion in a Bible study, that error with regard to fundamental truth is serious. 
Because what we believe, and I've said it so many times, but it bears repeating constantly, what we believe affects ultimately the way we behave. That is what was happening in Corinth. There were serious ramifications and repercussions of their starting to believe that they would not be raised from the dead bodily one day. And so Paul in verses 12 to 19 lists the consequences, the repercussions of their denial of the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So let's look at them tonight under two headings. First of all, we see there are theological repercussions if there is no resurrection. And somewhat as an offshoot of that, we find Paul personalizes these thoughts and actually starts to speak to these people and says, your faith is useless, you're still in your sins, your Christian dead have perished, and so on, year of all men most miserable, if there is no resurrection. And he comes right down to their individual level and, and he tells them of the ramifications of personally believing that there is no resurrection for you. So let's look at, first of all, the theological ramifications if Christ be not raised and if there is no future resurrection for us all. Verse 13, but if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? Now you might think that is self-explanatory, but his first line of argument is, if there is no resurrection for you, and I've just spent 11 verses proving that to you, but if that is true, and there's no resurrection for you, you must conclude that what I've just said to you, in fact, is not true. Christ is not raised if you are not going to be raised one day. Now, his logic in arguing this is unanswerable. He's saying, look, if there's no bodily resurrection for men and women like you and me, then Christ cannot be risen. And he almost looks them eyeball to eyeball and says, look, do you believe that? Do you really believe that Christ is not risen? And I can almost hear them replying, of course we believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is risen. We're not disputing that, but we are disputing that we will be raised one day. Now let me just pause for a moment because we found ourselves in a courtroom scene last week and it's almost reminiscent of that in this sense that Often when you're going to prove in a court of law or just in everyday life, the possibility of any fact or the possibility of any occurrence taking place, all you have to do is demonstrate that it has already taken place at least once. Have you got that? To prove that something is possible, all that you need to do is prove that it happened once. You might have heard it as being described as a precedent created. You've heard that, haven't you? A precedent has been created. A precedent for a conviction. And what we have here is Paul in verses 1 to 11, and now specifically verses 12 and 13, is saying, look, you have got to believe in your own resurrection. Why? Because a precedent has been created. If Christ has risen, you will rise. But if you're saying now that you're not going to rise, it means that Christ has not risen. It seems strange, perhaps, to you that they could accept one part of the truth that Jesus has risen from the grave without the other, that they would rise from the grave one day. And it is a bit confusing because the two truths are inextricably linked. 
We're very fond of that phrase in the province, but here, here is where it applies. The two come together, Christ's resurrection and our resurrection. So how could they be confused? How could they believe that God could do it for Jesus, but he cannot do it for us? Now, I think to understand this, we, we have to look a little bit at the cause of their confusion. And we have to look to the historicity in the context of the Corinthian church. Now, you remember many, many weeks ago, I spoke to you about the fact that the Corinthians had imbibed some Greek philosophy. Many of them in this church, whether it be because they were converted out of this philosophical background, or whether it was there were false Christian so-called teachers going around the church starting to espouse this false doctrine, they were looking to a doctrine of dualism within the universe. Now, let me explain what that is. They were becoming spiritists in the sense that they believed that everything around them physically was evil. Your body is evil. This pulpit is evil. Anything around you that you can touch and feel and sense is evil, but the spiritual realm is all good. And many believers, perhaps, in this church had imbibed this philosophy. And therefore, you can see what the ramification of that was. They, they were absolutely appalled at any suggestion that after you died, that your body would be raised from the grave, because the body to them was worthless. In fact, it was sinful. It was the seat of the sinful nature. They believed that the body was like a prison for your spirit or your soul. They believed that the day that you died, that your, your, your soul, like a bird from a cage, would fly into paradise, and you would realize your true self and utopia. And that is why Paul, as we saw last week in Acts 17, was mocked when he preached of resurrection in the Greek city of Athens. It was foolishness to them, foolishness to the Greek. Now, perhaps it's only a suggestion, but I think it carries a great deal of weight that there were those coming into the Corinthian church and saying, look, we believe that Christ rose from the dead, but he didn't rise bodily. These type of forefathers of Gnostics, we could call them, who were saying, look, Christ rose from the dead, but he rose spiritually, not physically, spiritually. Therefore, when you live on, they weren't saying that you become extinct in eternity, or you don't live on, but when you live on, you live on spiritually, and you will never live on physically again. Because Christ's resurrection was only spiritual, therefore your resurrection will only be spiritual. It was this dualism. Now, to believe that, they had to believe that Christ was not a man. You got it? Because if Christ was a man, he was flesh and blood like you and me. And if he was a man and inhabited a body, that meant that that body was evil. And they couldn't equate in their mind that the body of Christ could be evil. Therefore, they decided that Christ came. But he was not really a man, or at least he wasn't fully man. He only appeared to be human. And consequently, when he died on the cross, hope you're putting all this together now. When he died on the cross, he only appeared to die on the cross. You got it? And therefore, when he only appeared to die on the cross, his resurrection did not need to be a bodily resurrection because he didn't have a body. Now, maybe you think that, that this is all intricate detail that I don't need to go into tonight, but the fact of the matter is this. This is what the Christian science movement teaches to this very day. This is what spiritualism, the spiritist church, teaches in our city. This is what Jehovah's Witnesses believe 
that the Lord Jesus did not bodily rise from the grave, but had some kind of spiritual resurrection. This is what modern theologians, Christians so-called, are teaching in our theological halls, that Christ did not bodily rise from the dead, that it doesn't really have to be the case that he needs to rise bodily from the grave as long as he's with us in spirit and our spirits will go to him one day. Now let me show you how important this is. Romans chapter 1. Turn to it with me. We read in verse 1, Romans chapter 1, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. What is the gospel of God? The gospel of God concerning, verse 3, his son Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. He was a man. John says in 1 John 1, we saw him, our eyes saw him, our ears heard him, our hands handled the word of life. He was a real human being. Now here's verse 4. And declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection of the dead. Now here's the truth of God. That, that castigates and exposes all error, whether it was in Paul's day or our day, the resurrection of Jesus Christ evidences both the humanity and the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ. You got it? That's why it's so important. That's why men want to deny it. If they're wanting to deny the deity of Christ, they deny the resurrection. Even those wanting to deny the humanity of Christ deny the resurrection and make it some kind of spiritual thing. But God rose Jesus from the dead in the flesh of the seed of David. And while doing so, he declared him to be his son by the resurrection of the dead. Let us never imbibe the lies of the cults. Jesus said to John on the Isle of Patmos in that wonderful vision in the book of the Revelation, I am the Alpha and Omega. I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead and am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of death and Hades. This is our Savior. And I'll tell you this. This is the great issue. The great issue in religious debate today is not only ecumenism or the charismatic movement. It is not about what is mortal sin, what is morality, what is not. The real issue today and always has been the issue is this. And never forget it. What think ye of Christ? I was talking to someone recently and they were getting engaged with a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon. And they were starting to discuss about who Jesus was. And this friend of mine said, I hope it's nobody here, it doesn't really matter, but said... Well, I tried to detour him away from the person of the Godhead because I felt it was more important matters. I said, don't make that mistake. That is the important matter. That is the only matter. That is the matter upon which truth and error is divided. Jesus said to Simon Peter, Whom do men say that I am? Some say that I'm a, a, you're Elijah, Lord. Some say that you're John the Baptist come back from the dead. Some say you're Jeremiah the prophet. 
Who do you say that I am, Simon Peter? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And the Lord Jesus said, Upon this rock I will build my church. Now the Savior is a rock, of course. But I believe in that passage specifically that the rock was not just the Christ, but the statement of truth who the Christ was. The resurrection is evidencing for us that he was man, but he is and always shall be God. Now let me show you the importance of this. Turn with me to Second John, that little epistle at the end of your New Testament. Second John. John was a man who wrote often against the Gnostics, I quoted to you, from First John chapter 1, and now we're coming to Second John. You do remember in the Gospel of John, what did he, how did he start off his, his gospel? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And later on, I think it's verse 14, what does he say? And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Now here in the second epistle of John, of course there's only one chapter, and in verse 7 we read these words. Many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus is come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. You can't get much clearer than that. Anyone who says today, no matter if they call themselves Christian missionaries or not, that Jesus did not come in the flesh, that the Son of God was not made flesh by the seed of David and took upon himself the likeness of sinful flesh apart from sin, is antichrist, and we ought to have nothing to do with them. Now, we must move on. But is that not a fundamental fact of Christ? If there is no resurrection, I beg your pardon, that means Christ is not raised himself. Now, we're going to see like dominoes. Paul begins to pile the arguments to topple this Corinthian pagan philosophical reasoning. And the second point of argument is this. If Christ is not raised, and if you do not rise again, verse 14, then is our preaching vain. The word in Greek for vain there is the word kenos, which means empty, not having substance. Now, why is that such? If you're not going to be raised again from the dead, why has our preaching no substance? Why is it empty? Why is it vain? Well, here's the first reason. We looked at this in a bit more detail last week. We don't have time tonight. But here's the fundamental factor. Jesus himself, the Lord, promised that the third day after he had been taken by wicked hands and slain, he would rise again, destroy this temple, and in three days I will build it again. Now, that's a fundamental reason that if, if he didn't rise again or if there's no resurrection for us, our preaching, our gospel preaching is nonsense. Jesus must have been deluded. He must have been fooled by someone or fooled himself into thinking he was Messiah and the Son of God. He must have been deceived or either he was a deceiver. He was a wicked man. Who was getting people, who were, was getting people to follow him and ultimately follow him to perdition and to hell because he knew that he wasn't going to heaven. He knew he wasn't going to Calvary to die for sins. He knew he wasn't going to rise from the grave. Now listen, those are the only options that you have. If you've come into this meeting tonight and you think that Jesus was a good man or a prophet or a mighty preacher, but you don't think he's the son of God, 
That is not a logical option that you can take. You must believe he's a liar. He's a lunatic. Or he is Lord. There is no other logical conclusion. And if he was deceived or a deceiver, the second point why our preaching would be in vain is because he could not be worthy of our trust. How could you ask people, whether you're an apostle or not, to trust in a saviour who cannot be trusted? To trust in one who has lied? And I'll tell you this, if he did not rise from the grave, we have no way of knowing, even though we can preach it till we're blue in the face, that his death has any greater value than your death or mine. Have you got that? All the preaching in Christian history from the apostles through to the reformers to the revivalists to our modern age, all of the missionaries is a fabrication of historical inaccuracies and blatant lies. For if he did not rise from the dead, one, he is not God, and two, he did not work a work on Calvary to be qualified to be our Savior. One Christian author has said this and said it well, Christianity is Christ. And if he is not who he said he was, and if he did not do what he said he had come to do, the foundation is undermined and the whole superstructure will collapse. Take Christ from Christianity and you disembowel it. There is nothing left. What a folly it would be to preach about a man who lied and is dead rotting in a grave. You see it? If we're not going to rise again, that means Christ didn't rise again. And that means that our preaching is futile. And the offshoot of this is the response of, of people to the message would also be in vain. Your third sub-point, faith in Christ is empty. Look at verse 14. Our preaching is in vain, and your faith is also vain. What value is there in trusting in an empty message? A message that doesn't mean anything. Prince Charles says that when he exceeds the throne, that he will become the defender of faith. Do you know that we, although we believe that we are saved by grace through faith alone in Christ, it is not so much individual segregated faith that saves us. It is who our faith is in. And that is so important. You could have faith in Buddha and in Muhammad and in every religious leader and, and organization in existence. But the fact of the matter is, the quality of faith takes its character from the message that it believes in. Your faith is not worth anything unless your message is authentic. And if your message is vain and your message is empty and you're teaching that Jesus died and rose again and to trust in him and he didn't die for sin and he didn't rise again from the grave. Your faith means nothing. It is empty. And let's face it, as you go through the Acts of the Apostles and the rest of the New Testament, the overemphasized preaching of the Apostles was this, that because Jesus died and rose again, he has now power to save men and women. Is that not what Hebrews says? That he has the power to save to the uttermost all who come unto God by him, seeing what? He ever liveth. Faith in Christ is empty and there is no power to change lives. No point in having faith in him if he is dead in the grave. Fourthly, 
He goes further in verse 15, Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. The apostles, we, he says, and the witnesses, all of them of the resurrection, were liars. Now this is the point at which Paul now knocks, I believe, the Corinthian position into the grave itself. He is hammering the final nail in the coffin of this belief that somehow you can have an airy fairy faith that Jesus rose again, whether bodily or spiritually, but believe that you will never rise again. It just is impossible. And here's his reason. We are the apostles that are preaching this bodily resurrection. Is our message to you empty? In fact, worse than this, we not only would be liars by preaching this to you, but watch this phrase in verse 15. We would have testified of God wrongly. Now please ponder that statement for a moment because that is terrific. The apostle here is saying that all of the apostles and the witnesses to the resurrection that we named in the evidence last week in verses 1 to 11, Paul, Peter, the apostles, the 12, James, the 500 and others, all of them were standing in the dock giving evidence against God. If God didn't raise Christ from the grave, as they publicly state that God did raise Christ from the grave, what are they doing? They are misrepresenting God in their preaching. They make themselves to be liars. That's the apostles now. Indeed, they make every Christian throughout the whole of Christian history to be liars. Augustine... Thomas Aquinas, John Calvin, Martin Luther, John Charles Wesley, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, D.L. Moody, you can go on and on and on. They're all made to be liars and false witnesses. And of course, the one that crowns them all is the Lord Jesus Christ, for he led them all astray. God would have been misrepresented in their preaching. Do you not think they had to be sure that what they're saying was certain and was accurate? I just say a remark, a footnote, that it is very important whenever we preach from any pulpit with an open Bible that we never misrepresent God. It can be done, you know. The divine character was being falsified. It was being publicly stated that God did something that he did not do. And the, the fundamental factor is this. If the apostles could not be trusted in this so intrinsic matter to their message, how could their matters? How could they be trusted when, when Paul says we preach Christ crucified? How could he be trusted? The contemporary application of this, by the way, is this. Anyone who denies their bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is a witness against God. Isn't that ironic? That those who come to your door and call themselves Jehovah's Witnesses are in effect witnesses against Jehovah. For he has risen his son from the grave. Well, these are the theological repercussions. If no resurrection... Christ is not raised. The gospel preaching is futile. Faith in Christ is empty. The apostles and witnesses were liars. Now let's look at how Paul makes this personal to them in verse 17 to 19. Personally speaking, he says, And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. Your faith is vain. Now in verse 
14, you might think, well, he's already said that uh, our preaching is vain and your faith also is vain. But in verse 17, this is a different word that he uses for vain. It means lacking in result. Not empty, but lacking in result. It's talking about how their faith practically and personally is futile. It is fruitless. In other words, it's without effect. It doesn't figure. Now, we don't want to be too selfish as we view salvation, but the fact of the matter is, surely faith is to benefit the sinner, isn't it? It's to benefit us in our sin. And then subsequent Christian life, it's to benefit us day by day as we walk by faith and not by sight, as we live by faith and take the promises of God by faith. For it is impossible to have a fruitful faith, an effectual faith, if the object of our faith is dead. Do you see it? Your practical faith, personally, is useless. Now, the next statement shows us where that type of faith leaves us. In fact, it leaves us where it finds us, in our sin. You are still in your sin. That's the case, verse 17, he says. You are yet in your sin. Let me explain this to you, because I think sometimes we misunderstand these facts about the significance of the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. The Christian's salvation, your salvation, involves not only a cancellation of your sin. It's not just about having your sins cleansed away and the penalty of your sins being taken away from over your head. But salvation is a contribution to you from God. Not just a cancellation, but a contribution. There's a gift to you. Now, if we could simplize it like this, and it is uh, making it a little bit too simple, but for our understanding, if we could say that cancellation was done at Calvary, the cancellation of our sins was through the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, but that contribution of new life, the gift of eternal life, was and is through the resurrection of Jesus. Let me show you this. Because so often in our gospel preaching, we leave out the resurrection of Christ. Turn with me to Romans 4. Romans 4. Mark this verse. Very important. 4 and verse 25. We read. Verse 24. But for us also to whom it shall be imputed, if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses. That's Calvary. That is the cancellation of our offenses through his blood. Now here is the contribution in salvation. And was raised again for our justification. Now listen. You see this being delivered for our offenses, the the, the cancellation of our sins? It means absolutely nothing unless Jesus rose from the grave and contributed to us eternal life. Now get this tonight. A negative salvation that claims to do away with your sins means nothing unless it can be justified and proved. What good is a salvation that does away with the sins of our past but doesn't deal with our present or our future? That is the kind of salvation you and I would have if the Lord Jesus was not raised from the dead. Now mark this. 
the cross's significance is in the Lord Jesus' resurrection. A dead Savior is no use to anybody. Some of, some of us love to sing on a Sunday evening, My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin not in part, but the whole is nailed to his cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. Rubbish. If he did not rise from the dead. You know why? How would we know that my sin was nailed to his cross? How was God going to tell me that he was a satisfying sacrifice for my sin? But the resurrection justified us and was God's amen to Christ. He was the Son of God, vindicated at his resurrection. And what he did, the work that he finished and cried and said he did on Calvary, but there at his glorious coming forth from the tomb, he was vindicated, not in crucifixion, but in resurrection. God did raise him from the grave. That is why the Corinthians needed to believe that they would be raised themselves. Because Jesus told the disciples, Because I live, ye shall live also. In Acts chapter 5, the apostle preached to the Jews and said, The God of our Father raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a Savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sin. Do you grasp this? How would we know that our sins were washed away at Calvary if Jesus had not come from the grave? You know the tragedy of this, and it might be hard for you to imagine. I think the longer we're saved, maybe it is but you would still be in your sins just where you sit. And here's a further implication of that. If you were still in your sins, that means your Christian dead would have perished. Verse 18, and you one day will perish too. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. Now let me say first of all, in qualification, that this word perished never ever means annihilation. There's some evangelical scholars so-called, who tell us that once you die, you're done for, and that God wipes out the soul, sort of extinguishes the soul, and you're unconscious of anything. In fact, you're totally and utterly destroyed. A sort of cessation of being. Vine, that great Greek scholar, says that this word, perish, it is not loss of being, but rather loss of well-being. You see the difference? Loss of well-being. It speaks of ruin as far as the purpose for which a person or a thing was created. But put simply and bluntly in this context to us tonight, with all the terrible implications of what would happen if Christ had never rose from the grave, what Paul is now saying is, those who died that we loved in the church and in our families, who died trusting in Christ, they're in hell tonight. It's almost unthinkable. But Paul says that is the repercussion of not believing in your own resurrection. They are in hell. You know why? 
because Christ has not been raised for their justification, as Romans 4.25 testifies. And therefore they have no advocate before the bar of God's justice. And they have been condemned standing in their own unrighteousness rather than robed in the righteousness of Christ. You know what that means? All our funerals are a farce. All our committals where we talk about leaving a loved one into the ground in the sure and certain hope of the resurrection, it's all hot air. If Jesus has not risen from the dead, but praise God he has, and we one day will. That's why Paul could say in 1 Thessalonians 4 that those who die in Christ, albeit described as fallen asleep, they are assured of a resurrection. You know why? For the dead in Christ shall rise first. You got that? Is it clear enough? Here it is. This is why we believe it. But praise God we're living in the good of it. That our loved ones have gone to glory. They're absent from the body, yes. Waiting their resurrection. But they're present with the Lord. And one day they'll go body, soul and spirit to be with him. And be like him. For they shall see him as, as he is. Here's the fourth. Personal repercussion if there's no resurrection. We are the most pitiable people. Verse 19, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable or most pitiable. Notice it says, living believers are as wretched as those who have died without Christ if there is no resurrection. Most pitiable. And I believe what Paul's thinking of here are the sorrows, and if I had time, I could turn to you, for you to the sufferings of the great apostle, to the trials that he experienced, the persecution from his enemies, all that he had to undergo as afflictions for the gospel. And he's saying, look, if, if this is all a farce and a fairy tale, all of this suffering and sorrow and trial and persecution and affliction, it would be for a false cause. And I would have wasted my life for it all. And that is pitiable. I think it is pathetic, he said. Certainly is a tragedy. But you would be wasting your life for Christ now. Right now. If there is no resurrection for you and there was no resurrection for Jesus. Sometimes I hear people say, even from the pulpit, if I find out there was no God, imagine that, or that the Lord Jesus Christ was not Savior and Lord, I would live my life all over again as a Christian. Do you think like that? I don't. I wouldn't live life as a Christian. Not a bit of it. Not the suffering. Not the persecution. Not the trial. Not the temptation. Let me tell you why. Jesus says, Him that follows me, let him take up his cross and follow me daily. And him that loses his life for my sake will find it. Did you hear that? Lose your life for my sake. What would be the point of losing the present world and losing the world to come because there isn't one? At least you could gain this world. But as a Christian, we have given up this world. But because we believe that there's hanging over our heads a greater world. What would be the point of all that if it was only pie in the sky when you die? I'll tell you, Hebrews chapter 11, that hall of faith should be called the hall of the foolish. Yes, Abel, 
and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah and Moses, Rahab, David the prophets and all the rest. What were they faithful for? Faithful for nothing. We're reading that chapter. They were mocked and scourged and imprisoned and stoned and afflicted and ill-treated and put to death in vain. We have given up the pleasures of this world. I hope you have. And the follies of it. We have become strangers and pilgrims in this land and in this world. And if it's all a mistake, we'll lose both worlds. But we're glad to give it all up. Why? Because we gain life with Christ. And maybe the reason why you're not giving up this old world is because you don't really believe there's life with Christ farther on. If you really believed it, you'd be living for that world now. We then could say with the prophet in the Psalm 73, Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure, or with the servant of the Lord in Isaiah's prophecy, I have toiled in vain, I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. But the fact of the matter is, Peter says, We have not followed cunningly devised fables, but with infallible proofs. We have had it evidence to us that Jesus lives. No longer thy portals are cheerless. Jesus lives the mighty and strong to save. Hallelujah. Now Paul has fully demonstrated the folly of such teaching that you can just believe that Jesus rose again, but you don't have to believe that we are going to rise again as believers. Such a message, I think he has laid down very clearly for us, would not be glad tidings, but would be sad tidings, because the result of it would be, let's recap it, faith would be empty, preachers would be liars, practical faith would be useless, you would be unsaved, still in your sins, your departed saints, friends and relatives would be lost and in hell, and you would be living today in this world deceived and duped, and ultimately going into eternity lost yourself. But hallelujah, the resurrection is true. And he is alive. And because he lives, we shall live also. Come on now. Do we believe it? Do we really believe it? That's why the reformers, many of whom became martyrs, because they believed it. The covenanters and the missionaries, that's why they didn't praise this world, because they were living for a world to come, because the resurrection is true, and their resurrection is true. If Easter be not true, then all the lilies low must lie. The Flanders poppies fade and die. The spring must lose her fairest bloom for Christ were still within the tomb if Easter be not true. If Easter be not true, then faith must mount on broken wings. Then hope no more immortal springs. Then hope must lose her mighty urge. Life prove a phantom, death a dirge if Easter be not true. If Easter be not true, twere foolishness the cross to bear. He died in vain who suffered there. What matter though we laugh or cry, be good or evil, live or die, if Easter be not true? If Easter be not true, but it is true, and Christ is risen, 
and mortal man from his prison of sin and death with him may rise worthwhile the struggle sure the prize since Easter I is true praise God it's true if it wasn't true we should well take the advice of Solomon eat drink and be merry for tomorrow you die But it is true, tomorrow we go home and soon we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and be rewarded. A wounded soldier, knowing he was going to die, took his little Bible out of his pocket and he placed his finger on John chapter 11, 25, where Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And as the blood ran down his finger, it caused his finger to stick to the page of his Bible at that verse when he died. It was stuck. And for us, I'll tell you, it is sure. And it is a certain hope because we stake our whole eternity on it and the declaration of not only the apostles and the prophets, but the angelic messenger is true. Why seek ye the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. He is risen. Can you say he is risen indeed? He is risen. He is risen indeed. Praise his name. Our Father, we thank thee that we can say, Lo, he sets in blood no more. For he is risen. Exalted and at thy right hand, the Prince and the Savior. And Father, we thank thee tonight that Christ is risen. And we shall rise also, and our faith is not in vain, neither is our preaching in vain. We thank thee that we are not in our sins tonight, and we will never perish, and as Christ has told us, neither shall any man pluck you out of my hand nor my Father's hand. And we thank thee, our Father, that we are not of all men to be pitied, but of all men to be envied. For we have Christ in life and in eternity. And nothing shall the bond sever. I am his and he is mine. And neither death nor life will separate us from his love. Glory be to his name. And may his life, his resurrection power be uplifted in our lives now and evermore. Amen.